and welcome to The Animated Journey, a podcast featuring interviews with animation professionals working in television, film, and games. I'm your host, Angela Ensminger, and today I bring you part one of my two-part interview with Daria Yermina. Daria is an amazing person. We first met at school when we worked on a student collaborative project together called Dino Hunt. It was a lot of fun. And since then, Daria has gone on to become a rigger as well as a junior technical director at a number of studios. In part one, we discuss what it was like for Daria growing up in the USSR, how she developed her love for filmmaking, and what led her to pursue a career in animation and visual effects in the United States. We talk about some of her jobs that she had while she was a student, as well as jobs that she had after she graduated. And then in part two, we dive deep into what it was like working at Leica, where she worked on Kubo and the Two Strings, their upcoming feature film, what it's been like teaching the next generation of students, and she talks about her own personal project, which she has assembled a team to work on with her. It's a wonderful discussion. I know that all of you are going to enjoy it. So without further ado, on with the show. Hello, everyone. My guest today is Daria Hermina. Daria is an excellent person we first met in school. She's worked for companies such as Spitball Entertainment, Read Imagine, and Puppetar Studios. And recently, she was a junior RP rigger for Leica, and then later became a junior technical director Daria, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I'm really excited about this. We haven't had a chance to talk. Uh, we were talking uh, before we started recording that the last time that we had to talk to each other was actually right before graduation. So this is really nice. It's just a nice way to catch up. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Excellent. So I always like to start from the very beginning. So Daria, where are you from? Originally, so I was born in Riga, which is the capital of Latvia, though when I was born, it was still part of Soviet Union. And then I moved to Russia and I grew up in Moscow. So all my like childhood and youth was in Moscow. All right. And what was it like growing up in Moscow? Like what were some of your influences like artistically and film wise growing up there? Well, when I was growing up there, I didn't even think I would want to work in film, actually. So I was interested more, even though I was interested in film, I didn't think of it as something that I could eventually get into. So I was more interested in sort of literature and that aspect of, so like literature studies and such and linguistics. And so actually my first, the first education that I was getting was in linguistics. So when I graduated school, I went to Moscow State University and studied that. Yeah, but film was definitely very important for me when I was growing up too. And like at some point I just, so I was discovering like a lot of Russian directors when growing up, Tarkovsky or Eisenstein, who I don't think I would be able to appreciate as much uh, or discover in the same way if I'd be growing up anywhere else. So that definitely shaped me quite a bit. That's great. And Getting to literature as well, what were some of your favorite books that you read growing up that influenced you to go that, you know, along that path? Good question. Well, there were definitely authors that influenced me, but not necessarily to go into film, but I guess just shaped me to be who I am. Uh, I guess when I discovered uh, Gilbert Chesterton, that was an important part of my life, like that kind of surreal style of writing. Lewis Carroll 
was a great influence on like the work that I'm doing now. All these kind of British surreal authors. I've been kind of since even before I moved to the United States, I was trying to get into Pynchon, uh, Thomas Pynchon and kind of read him in original. And I feel like since then, almost every year, I'm trying to pick up a new uh, book of his and try to read it. And I kind of I find a lot of interesting things from him, but at the same time, I can never, with English being my second language, he's very difficult for me to read and appreciate the same way as a native speaker would. What is the education system like over there? And when did you first start learning English? I started learning English at school, but I think it's different. Uh, so learning English as in learning rules and grammar and such is different from actually being able to speak it and to kind of have a feel for language. So I think I really started learning English on my own at around 13, 14, when I started watching films and TV shows in English. At some point, I realized that I can watch something without translation after I watched Paul Babylon 5 in English. So that has always been one of my favorite TV series, Babylon 5. And But I've seen it in translation, so in Russian. But because I loved it so much, I tried watching it in English, all of it. And like from start to end. And at that point, after I finished that, I realized, okay, now I can, now I understand English. <laughs> now I can watch something else in English too. And so that kind of, that kind of helped. That is great. That Babylon 5 helped you to learn English. Yeah, I yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It, it seems like for everyone who, who has learned English, like kind of on their own mainly, for everyone, there is their own film or TV show that helped them learn it. For a lot of people, it's Friends. They kind of learned English through watching Friends and they're at different films for different people. So tell me, so what was it, mm -hmm. since you were studying literature and you're studying linguistics, what led you to decide to pursue film and animation? And then how did you decide to earn a degree here in the States? Yeah, well, so as I said, kind of even though... I studied linguistics. I was always, film definitely was a really important part of my life. And so I mentioned Tarkovsky and Eisenstein as being really important directors for me. But also there were a lot of European and American directors that were important to me. So like Jim Jarmusch, I discovered him when I was in my early teens, around 13, 14. And he was really important sort of to shape up the way I felt about film and and film as kind of a medium of self-expression. And then discovered Tim Wenders, who also, through him, I realized that film is, I guess I could really identify with some of their works. And through them, like after them, I started discovering all kinds of other directors, like from Asian directors and European directors and so on. And I realized that it would be great to work in film and also with literature and with linguistics, you can't really go, not even go that far, but it's, it's definitely a kind of thing where you can write about literature or be a professor of some sort, but mainly earn your money doing some other work, like doing translations or editing and so on. 
And with film, it seemed like you can really create something important and you could use film for like, against self-expression or like, expressing your emotions and feelings and, and ideas. But at the same time, be it your only, uh, the only thing that you do. And I knew that I want to work in the industry, in the film industry, but I kind of didn't know how to get into it better because I knew that everyone wants to be like a director or an actor and so on. And I thought, well, there's visual effects. And I felt at that point that nobody wants to do visual effects probably. And I felt myself that I'm kind of a technical, a technically minded person and I could get into film industry from that side, from, uh, from the more technical visual effects side. And so I thought, well, where is it better to learn uh, visual effects than in California, than in the United States, where, where sort of all this production is happening. So that's kind of when I decided to move, to move here and pursue that as my career. And I thought this would be a good sort of visual effects would be a good leeway into film industry. And through that, uh, I'll be able to sort of create my own, like after sort of getting in, I would be able to create my own work. I liked your process. I liked how you kind of went through it and decided, all right, what do I like? What do other people like? But what's something that, you know, is really interesting, but maybe a lot of people may not necessarily be going into so it would be a really good fit for me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But then once I came here, I realized how high competition is in visual effects and in animation and that it wasn't really as as easy as one might think to get into the industry. So how did you decide to come to the U.S. to study as opposed to, you know, studying in Russia or studying somewhere else throughout Europe? Well, I was thinking... For a little bit to study in Russia, so there is a university called Geek, or I guess it's an institute, or maybe a university, I'm not sure, which like a lot of really great professionals and animators uh, came out of there. So I was thinking about that for a little bit, but I felt like in United States, so I really like Russian animation and Russian cinematography, but I kind of... It's very it's difficult to have commercial success doing that, and even though so commercial success is not an, is not as important to me when making things, but at the same time, I want to be able to just make films, just or not necessarily films. Like right now, I'm working on the game, so like to create things basically to just create things and be able to not do anything else. And you can do that only if what you're making can cover the costs of making it. And I feel like the system you have in the United States really allows to do that. And I'm not really snobbish about, well, I am a bit, but not as much as <laughs> a lot of people are snobbish about the films that come out. So like the big films that come out and or even films with visual effects. So some people, for them, that alone makes the film be just, oh, this is just something that people watch with popcorn, kind of undermine that. But I think there are a lot of great directors who kind of use 
this model of having of having a film that would you'd think would appeal to mass audience but actually has something really important in it. For example, some Guillermo de Toro's films are doing it really well. And some earlier Tim Burton films were doing that. And in them he was doing that really well too. So I felt like I felt like I would like to potentially go into sort of that kind of filmmaking where you can still make a film that's appealing to a lot of people but have something important in it. And maybe then, you know, after you make things like that, you can get money to create your own things that don't have to be as appealing to everyone and, and be more artistic. I don't know if that answered your question. No, that's but, a, that's uh-huh. a good way to think about it. And uh-huh. I liked what you said too, about the fact that, Hey, you know what? A film is a film, whether it's a big popcorn movie or, you know, what some might consider a super artistic movie, you know, it needs to get made and it needs special effects uh-huh. and you can be there to work on it. And I feel like every film has some kind of merit, you know, yeah. either story wise or, you know, the people that you work with or the type of project you get to do on the film. Yeah, I agree. So what is the process then for being able to study overseas? What were some of the things you had to do to prepare so that you were able to come over here, you know, and go to school in California? I didn't really prepare at all. It's kind of crazy to think about it now, but after I decided that I want to come here and study here, a few weeks afterwards, I was already here. It's well, maybe not a few oh, weeks, man. but like it only yeah. took a couple of weeks. Wow, yeah, that's yeah, really like, fast. Well, because okay, so here's what happened. So I was in Moscow studying in Moscow State University, and so then I decided. So then it so happened that I went to. So my family was living in Riga at that point, and so I went to live with them for a bit, and because of all kinds of reasons. And so I thought that I would continue studying philology, uh, but in Europe. And I was looking at universities in England, but I was also thinking, well, I really love film. So why don't I, why don't I study visual effects? And kind of, so I was going to spend about half a year just applying to places and seeing how that goes. And I started applying to places in Britain for philology. And especially because since I was born in Latvia, I'm a citizen of a European Union, so I can study anywhere in Europe. So when I was talking to my parents about it, and they never liked the idea of me studying philology because they felt like it's very difficult to support yourself doing that. So when I said, kind of as a crazy idea, I didn't even think they would take it seriously. I said, oh, maybe I'll just go to United States and study visual effects. They said, yes. We think that's a great idea. That's so much better than philology. Please do that. Yeah. So then I just started researching what schools did the best. And yeah, that's how I found Academy. And I didn't even, I wasn't sure if I would be able to study there for how long, but I was lucky to get a scholarship and finish my education here. That's kind of how that went. What is the visa process like for students who want to come and study in the United States? So, well, it's, there is an educational visa. I think it's F1. Yeah. And you just, as soon as you get accepted or like as soon as you get a paper from 
from your school that Daria will be a student here or whatnot. Yeah, you just go and get your student visa. That that process is not difficult. They just keep asking you questions about, they're trying to figure out if you're trying to stay in the United States. So you have to answer questions like, no, I'm not planning to stay there. I want to go home. Uh, so they're, yeah. they're trying to weed out people. They're like, yes, I'm going to come in as a student, but I'm really going to stay for the yeah, rest exactly. of my life, you know, on like a student visa. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But then like once you, once you finish being a student, you can either get a work visa or you can get an OPT and, and so on. How long do student visas last? Uh, how, however long your education lasts, usually. But it's different. Each country is different. So I know some people, they had to go back every year to renew their visa. For me, the first visa they gave me was for three years. And I was like, oh, great. And then the second visa they gave me was for like five years or something. That was surprising. I guess I'm very trustworthy. They <laughs> realize she's telling the truth and she's serious about her education. Yeah, yes. yeah, something like that. Yeah, well, because, well, five years made sense because once your education ends, you can still stay in your student visa if you have an OPT, which is your practical training. So that's, it gives you permission to work on your student visa. What does OPT stand for? Optional practical training. So is that like a student visa plus a work permit type of yeah, situation? It, yeah, it's mainly like a work permit thing. So while you're a student, if you want to work as a student, you have to get a CPT, which is a curriculum practical training. And then once you graduate, you have sort of three months, three months window to find a job. And if you do find a job, then you, so you apply for your OPT. Then you have three month window to find a job. And once you do, you can work on your OPT for a year. And then I think you can extend it for another year. So then you came over here mm -hmm. for school. And was school the first time that you'd ever been in the United States? Well, as I found out later, no. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't realize that at first because I actually found out that during, so when you apply for visa, you have to go through the interview where they ask you all those questions about whether you're planning to stay here or not. And they also asked me, have you been in the United States before? And I said, no. And they said, yes, yes, you have. And I said, no, I don't think so. And they said, yes. And, and they gave me a year and how long I've been here for. And then I realized, oh, yeah, I think I have. And I realized when I was four, four years old, me and my parents, we went to United States. So that was when sort of the borders opened. So a lot of people from like post-Soviet countries started traveling abroad a lot and my parents as well. And so both they and me, we all went to the United States for like a holiday. But I forgot about that completely. And yeah, and at that interview, I remembered about it and kind of then talked to my parents. And they said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't you remember? We all went to, I don't remember, like Florida or somewhere. So apparently, no, that wasn't my first time. But that is the first time that I have, <laughs> that I have a recollection of. Do you kind of remember that trip now or is it still lost in you know, uh, memory somewhere? Sort of, a little bit, glimpse and pieces, but I don't know, maybe I'm just imagining it because I know, well, because I, I can look at the pictures, they took pictures, so I looked at the pictures and it seems like I vaguely remember some something, but I don't know. 
I found that happens sometimes with really old memories, particularly when you are looking at photos. It's this thing of, do I remember this because I remember this? Or do I remember this because I've seen so many pictures yeah, exactly. of this? <laughs> and I've heard so many stories from my family that I just think I remember this when I don't. Yeah, yeah. So then you came to the U.S. and you're here at school. Uh -huh. What was that like? Did you experience any kind of culture shock or was there some kind of, like, what was the adjustment period like getting used to being here? Yeah, well, there was definitely a culture shock. Well, I think part of the reason, so I was, I really liked the American culture, but everything I knew about American culture was like from 60s and 70s kind of culture. Oh, so, like 60s and 70s television shows? Well, not even television shows, but well, I, well, television shows, I guess, too. But I was really into, even before coming here, I was really into that kind of period, uh, horror movies, everything with Peter Lorre and Vincent Price. And <laughs> like, I was into, I don't know, Velvet Underground and Modern Lovers and that kind of music, which, so in my mind, that was how United States is supposed to be. And I thought, yeah, it's San Francisco. So it's like, you know, in my head, it's like, oh, Summer of Love and all that. <laughs> and it never escaped from the Summer of Love. It's just yeah. perpetually going on. Yeah. And well, there, even though there is like a bit of that, well, and a lot of that, actually, which I really cherish in San Francisco, especially like there are a lot of great uh, theaters that still show films from from all kinds of eras, actually. And, you know, there's city lights and, and all that. But at the same time, I didn't realize that time moved on from then and now there's all different things now there's all this tech culture which which i also actually love and i mean right now much more than seven years ago when i came here but even then yeah even then it was different and even small things that you don't think about even i don't think about now were like a huge change from back home and here like filing taxes and and stuff like that is back home so like that process is uh, made differently because it's the company that has to do taxes and individual people don't do their taxes. So the taxes automatically are just being taken out of people's paychecks and they don't even know how much or, or anything. Whereas here, it's so much in the culture of how much taxes you pay for what and so on. So things like that, like it sounds minor, but it really like shapes up people's personality and things. And just, I feel like people here are really, what I really loved about here is that people are really hardworking. And there are a lot of people who are hardworking. And at the same time, which, which, is, which is interesting, is like people have a very strong separation between this is my work and this is my life. And they're two different things. And like, I work from nine to five or something, and then I go and drink with friends. Or, or whatnot. Whereas I feel like back home, it's a bit more like merged your professional life and your sort of personal life and all that. So, so those kinds of things. Oh, what was like here was interesting. It was strange to me that people, so there's some cultural things, like people ask, how are you? But they don't really, they're fine with just an answer, okay. So they ask, how are you? Oh, good, thanks. And then you just walk by. But so back home, if you ask someone, how are you? They'll tell you all a story about their life and how their wife left them and how 
I know how they have problems at work and and all that, and it will be like a conversation for an hour. So it was really strange to me that here someone would ask me, "Hey, Dario, how are you?" And I would stop and start answering, and they realize, "Oh, this person has already left. I just started answering how my life is." Yeah. So you realize with those kinds of things that they're more like social conventions rather than actual questions. And once you get used to it, you accept it and and kind of like it and, and whatnot. How weird was that for you to get used to some of the social conventions? Do you feel like you picked up on that really quickly or did that take quite a bit of time? Yeah, I think so. I, th- I think it was it was easier for me than, than I see it being for a lot of people. I think because I don't fight it. I just know, okay, this is how people here live and this is how they tend to communicate. And I'm the foreigner, like I'm the guest. So it's like, I either accept it or I leave, or I'm just here being unhappy. So I'd rather be happy and do accept those. Yeah. And it's not difficult to accept. You understand, like you can understand anybody and from any culture, if you, if you try. That's a good attitude to have. Yeah. (laughs) So while you were in school, what were some of the differences that you noticed studying in university here versus studying in the university at home, besides the fact that you were studying different subjects? Well, it wasn't, I think it wasn't the only difference. The other difference is, so education back home is free and here it's not. That's a big difference. And because, and that kind of shapes people's attitude towards school. One thing that was different, a big difference is that also here, at least at academy, like people can pick their subjects and shape their terms as they want. And back home, you're kind of stuck with the classes and with the group of people you're with. And because of that, I feel like that's like amazing about here and about school system here, because this way people who really want to study and people who really want to learn and put a lot of hours into their education, they can do that. They can pick classes that are difficult. They're more difficult than other people who kind of want an easier way of wouldn't pick. And so like you can pick an instructor that you know has experience that you're looking for and so it's those kinds of things that I think are great. Yeah, and the fact that like the fact that we had a lab and ability to work with people, again, it's all about I think it's all about community of people who want to work as hard as you and create things that are important to them. Even though those might not be the things that I like or enjoy, but I respect people's perseverance and hard work and kinda for example, when I was at school, we would work at the lab all the time. So like me and a few other people, and you kind of become friends with like, like-minded people who want to, I know, succeed for lack of better word and, and create things and, and put effort into their education. Whereas back home, I think it's more merged. There's still people who really love doing what they do and and putting effort into uh, into their studies, but not I feel like not as much as here. And you mentioned earlier too that you were given a you were able to earn a scholarship mm-hmm. to go to school. 
How did you go about getting your scholarship? Oh, well, so I was applying to a lot of things, but that was actually a private scholarship uh, that I got eventually. That was it. (laughs) What did you have for for students who are looking to get scholarships from various places? What did you have to do? As I said, it was a private scholarship, but uh, like I would just suggest apply everywhere. So this was through Academy, actually. This scholarship that I got was through Academy, but they're all other kinds. And I think like for this kind of thing, it's important not to be discouraged because most scholarships you won't be applicable for, you won't get, or, and with loans too, it's often difficult. But yeah, it's just, it requires a lot of work to just apply to places and create letters and, and such. But yeah, eventually, so I got the scholarship through Academy and the director of my department was really good to recommend me for it. And and like Lisa Stevens was very generous in, in providing it. Okay. So you do, did you write like an essay or was it more like you had to submit like a real type of thing? Oh, I don't really remember. I do remember showing my reel, but there was some writing involved too. I remember it was a while ago. That's okay. That's okay. I was just curious because I know that, you know, a lot of students are looking into, you know, working and work study and scholarships and loans. So it's just always interesting to hear like, you know, what people did. So, you know, for people looking to go to school, they can figure out, oh, okay, this is something I need to look into. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But that was the the kind that I got was a really rare one to get. So I was just really, I think, lucky. Like, and for me, it was kind of like, I either, I can either get it or I have to, have to go home. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, yeah. It oh, was, wow. Was that, so. I'm really glad you got it. I mean, I'm glad that you <laughs> yeah. got it anyway, but I'm especially glad that you got it. Otherwise, you'd, you would have had to go home. So that, that's not good. So yeah. yeah, definitely. It's good that you're able to stay. All right. So while you were in school, how did you decide to eventually become a rigger? Was that something that you decided while you were in school? Or was it more of you took a variety of classes and then decided later on that that's what you would do? Yeah, so it was a bit of a mixture of two. So I think the first semester that I came here, I didn't even know what rigging was. And I didn't really know what exactly I wanted to study, what exactly my specific major would be. So I kind of, I did take a few classes, but I realized rigging is something that's both, like I liked rigging because it was both technical and artistic, which I feel my brain is good at accepting both of those sides and kind of merging them together because with rigging, there is a lot of technical side, like there, there is a technical side to it. You have to know some programming and you have to understand how connections work and so on. But at the same time, you need to understand how the body moves and how deformations happen and things like that. All right. And then also, I think this would be a good time to discuss this too. Uh-huh. Describe what exactly it is, because I know yeah. that a lot of people out there, this may actually be the first time that they've ever heard of this. So what is rigging? Yeah, sure. Uh, so rigging is a part of production that goes between 3D modeling and 3D animation. So in CG, we have modelers and animators, and modelers create the 3D models, and animators have to create poses and movements to get movement and get movement out of them. Now, because everything a model is, is just a combination of polygons or vertices, animators can't just grab 
vertices and use them to shape character. Or they can, but that would take forever to get any animation out of that. So because of that, we have this middle person who is a CG rigger and or a character technical director, however you want to call them. Uh, so their job is to place in joints into the model and create special controllers for an animator to be able to easily deform the character. So it's a kind of, uh, so rigging is a kind of discipline that requires you understand how a body moves and how different deformations happen and where different joints, uh, where should different joints be placed in the body. Very good. And you had the opportunity to work on a variety of projects, not just your own thesis, but several student films. And mm-hmm. I had an opportunity to watch your reel. And it's great because, it, it, I mean, not only is it put together really well, but you rigged a variety of creatures, people, all sorts of things. Oh, so can you. you talk a little bit more about that? Uh, yeah. So, yeah, well, at school, so you start kind of being friends with people you spend most time with. And for me, that was mainly people who uh, spend most time in the lab. And so we together we collaborated on certain projects. And like I collaborated a lot with my good friend, uh, Amrender. And together with him, we worked together. I worked on his short film, Sidekick, which is a good experience. It, it, won, it won a few awards and got into festivals, and into a lot of festivals, which was great. And we worked together with him on this film, Dino Hunt. Well, and together with you on this film, Dino Hunt which was a great experience as well. And that film is still in the works. They've been working on it for forever. It it looks great and amazing. And yeah, I think it's important to definitely collaborate with people who are good at what they do. Also, I started getting... like People start noticing you and the things you do and rig and kind of inviting you to work on their projects. And my first... That's how I was getting my first paid jobs as well. I think my first actually paid job was from someone who used to work at the Academy, but then they left. And so it was Randy Link who used to work at the Academy, but then he left and was working on his short film. So I rigged a dinosaur for him. And yeah, that was I think that was the first time I was paid for, for doing rigging. That was a lot of fun too. That's excellent. And I personally think it's a difficult thing to do. So it's a really good skill to have because it's it's sometimes hard to find a really good rig. I mean, I feel like it's gotten, I don't want to say easier, but maybe not quite as difficult as it used to be. I feel like more people are starting to get into it, but it's still a part of the industry that I don't feel like a lot of people either know about or tend to think about when they first get into school? Mm, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, I think as for like finding a good rig, it's just difficult to rig something that would be a rig for all purposes. So if you're rigging as a part of production, there are some poses that you don't expect a character to hit, and then you don't worry about them. And you worry about deformations like in the and the poses and shots that you care about. So when as students who just grab rigs that were characters that were pre-rigged, there will be cases that a rigger didn't account for. 
So I think that's that's the reason for that. What do you think makes a really good rigger? For someone who wants to get into your field, what are some good skills for them to have? I think, well, programming is really important. The, the ability to write tools and such, because in in the industry, you'll be using usually proprietary tools of the company that you work at. And so it's important to be able to modify them or add to the ones created. So definitely programming is a skill that that, that is very important. Also, just knowledge of anatomy and knowledge of how the correct anatomy behaves and how you can change it for sort of the purposes you need. Very good. Thank you. I was very curious about that myself. Yeah. All right. So, so after graduation, you worked at uh, several different studios. What was that experience like? So I worked at, and that was like part of them were still while I was at school. So because of the way my scholarship worked and everything, I had to stretch my school for a while. So some of them were during school and, and some after, but it was, so Spitball Entertainment was the first company and that was a game company, and they made a game for. I actually don't, I'm not even sure if that company exists or not. But it's a small. It was a small company in the Bay Area, and they were making a game for young girls. That game I worked on. I'm not really. I usually don't like saying anything bad about places I worked at, but just that particular game is not the kind of game I would play. And I would go further and say that's not the kind of game I would prefer to exist in this world in general, because okay. it's kind of it's a game for young girls between the ages of eight and eleven. And the idea is that in this game you kind of do shopping, and you have to get the character to become a superstar. But you do that by like meeting celebrities and shopping and such. And the reason why I'm kind of against games like that is because. I feel like those kind of show for young women that there's nothing more in their life than to do like shopping and meet celebrities, which is not something that games have been for me when growing up and not it's not what I see my life like. So yeah, so that was a difficult sort of moral experience for me because I needed a job and I liked the people worked on the game too but at the same time the game itself I was very it was very sad to understand I guess that's what people felt who worked on Manhattan Project or something to some extent <laughs> like yeah, yeah it's, like we're, it's like we want to work we like the people but do we like what we're doing yeah, yeah exactly exactly I was reading so some Richard Feynman's a bunch of interviews of Richard Feynman were collected into a book and he was saying how when he worked in Manhattan Project the feelings he had after it was completed were very very draining and, and very difficult, even though when he worked on it, there were some really cool uh, challenges for a physicist to to solve and to work on. So so that was, I don't want to compare this game to, to the time map, but... Uh, <laughs> it's but like, it, it's not, we're not comparing apples to apples. Yeah, but. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it was kind of, it was kind of like that. So it was kind of a sad the experience for me but it, it gave me some it, it was a good rigging experience and you had to rig really fast because there were a lot of characters and they didn't have really a pipeline set up so I could use a lot of my own tools 
and that was fun. So I had chance to develop more tools to work with. Yeah, that was my first real job in, in the industry, I guess. Yeah. Uh, do you want me to continue talking about the other yeah, companies? And then, you, and then you were at um, <laughs> yeah, Read Imagine and Puppeteer Studio. So were those yeah. were those in school as well, or when when oh, were those? Read Imagine uh, was, I think, closer to the end of my education. Sometime. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to remember. Yeah, I think yeah, it was before before graduation. Yeah. So Read Imagine, they actually, I know for sure, they. They don't exist anymore. So it was a small company and they were really nice people. So like the CEO was really nice and he really tried to build something new. And he used to work at Pixar before for like longest time. And now he works at Sony, I think at Sony PlayStation. But yeah, he tried to create his own company where uh, you would have these books for children, like iPad books for children to learn children how to read. And while kids are learning how to read, they can watch small animations and do some little interactions with the characters. And that was also, so that was a much nicer project to work on, but also like great experience because again, it was really fast, like you had to rig really fast. And for animators too, like animators had to animate really fast. So as you would get feedback from animators of what they needed to change in the rig, and like you had only couple hours to put in the fix which was like a really really tough and fast schedule but in the end i rigged all the characters for the little game that actually never came out sadly so the main animator for that game he had to animate something like six minutes of footage in like a year which is crazy in animation terms for one person to animate so much in a year yeah that's that's tough yeah, and I had to rig also a lot of characters in, in a short amount of time. But it was also because of that, again, I was able to develop even more of the tools because it was also, it was a young company. They didn't have really a, a pipeline established. So, yes, I was doing a lot of tool writing and a lot of rigging and it was a lot of fun. Yeah, and then Papatar, I think between those or partially overlapping those, I worked in the project at Tippett Studios too. That was really good. But that had nothing to do uh, with CG stuff. It was a stop motion project, Mad God, which was one of the most important things I feel I worked on apart from my own things. So that film that film Phil Tippett uh, is directing and it's kind of like his vision and everything. So I worked on it as sort of like helping with some set, with some lighting and some set construction and things like that. So that was, I was doing a bit of that between uh, those two, between Reimagine and Papatar, I think. Yeah. And so, but Papatar was a rigging job and that was a lot of fun too, but that project also never saw light. So it was a project, actually, I don't, I think I can even say I can't. I don't think I can even say who was who was the company that that paid for the project. But it's a big film company, an animation company that wanted their characters to be in in this um, what you call it, an attraction park 
kind of thing where you are on a ride and you see 3D characters jumping at you. So they wanted to do that. And Puppetar is a VFX company, but they took that. They took that job and we were working on it for six months. And I think all the characters were rigged and all the muscle simulation was created and everything. When the big company that was paying for the project decided that they don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> so, yeah. And so we all got laid off. <laughs> uh, yeah. But yeah, uh, but that was, that was, again, that was a good learning experience because I was doing a lot of muscle simulation there and had to get a lot of realistic movement. And uh, I worked with mocap and had to write some tools on how to transfer mocap to the rig and so on. Yeah, so that was fun. Yeah, and after that was Leica. And that concludes part one of my interview with Daria. Special thanks to Daria for coming on the show and make sure to tune in next week to hear part two where Daria will discuss more about what it was like working at Leica, as well as some personal projects that she is currently working on. I know that all of you will want to tune in next week to hear what she has to say, and I'll include a link to Daria's reel in the show notes, so make sure to check that out. And if you've enjoyed today's interview, please be sure to leave a five-star review in iTunes. Every review helps more and more people to find out about the show. And if you would like to support the show, you can visit the show website at www.theanimatedjourney.com and you can click on the PayPal button at the right-hand side and leave a donation. Every little bit helps. And thank you so much to everyone who has donated to the show thus far and to everyone who has left a review in iTunes. I really appreciate it. And be sure to check out our sponsors. We have a brand new sponsor, Loot Crate. Now, I know that some of you are familiar with Loot Crate, but for those of you who are not, Loot Crate is amazing. It is a subscription service for everyone who is into gaming, pop culture, geekery. It is the best thing ever. Every month, Loot Crate sends you a crate of awesomeness. We're talking t-shirts, comic books, vinyl figurines, keychains, hats, and various other collectibles featuring your favorite pop culture icons. For example, they've done things with Deadpool, they've done things with Star Wars, they've done things with Versus, Batman v Superman. If that is your thing, then Loot Crate is for you. Next month, the theme is dystopia. Now, I know what you're thinking with that. You're thinking Mad Max. That is what I'm thinking, but Dystopia just covers so many things. So if you guys want to get on this, make sure to click on the banner for Loot Crate on the right-hand side of the website. Again, that's www.theanimatedjourney.com and sign up. And be sure to use the promo code LOOTER3, that's L-O-O-T-R-3, to save $3 on your subscription. And make sure to check out our other sponsors for the show, Amazon, Audible, and Blueberry podcast hosting. Amazon is your place to go if you want to buy anything on earth. They have it. Audible is your place if you want to learn something new or if you want to listen to something that you've loved in the past. If you love audiobooks, Audible is for you. And you know what? If you don't know if you love audiobooks, give them a chance. They're pretty awesome. And if you'd like to host your very own podcast, 
make sure to check out Blueberry Podcast Hosting. That's the hosting service that I use. I love it. They have been great. Their support is awesome. And every time you click on the links for our sponsors and do your regular shopping, a little bit of money comes back to the show. They'll appreciate it. You'll appreciate it. And I will too. And to see what else is going on in the world of the animated journey, make sure to become a fan of our Facebook page at www.facebook.com slash the animated journey. You can check us out on Twitter at Anim Journey and on Instagram at Anim Journey. And if you want to see what I have been up to, it's the end of Mermaid. I've been drawing a whole lot of mermaids. It was a lot of fun. And now it's time to start drawing other things. So if you want to see what I've been doing lately, you can check out my website, www.sketchysoul.com. You can follow me on Instagram at sketchy underscore soul. You can follow me on Twitter at sketchy soul. And you can check out my Tumblr, www.sketchysoul.tumblr.com. So until next time, be encouraged, and as always, have a great day, everybody.